Hi there, listeners. Before we start the show, we just wanted to jump in for a moment to make a very special announcement. Yes. Hello, listeners. First of all, we hope that you're doing well, that you're very safe, comfortable, and healthy. The COVID-19 pandemic has affected pretty much everyone listening to this and even us. Yep. It may sound like we're sitting across the table from each other, but actually Tom and I are both recording from our separate homes. Ah, through the magic of podcasting, Greg. <laughs> it is sad not to be in the same room right now, but it, you know, at least we can keep putting the show out. So we are working at home, and chances are that many of you out there listening are also working from home. Or, or correction, or you're trying to work from home. Case in point, I just, before we started recording, put my two-year-old son down for a little nap and then ran in here to record this with you, Greg. We actually, <laughs> we actually had an Elmo dance party this morning. Definitely, I would say, not part of my <laughs> normal morning work schedule. I am sorry to say that I missed that, that I'm not around. You can have your um, own Elmo party. dance party. Oh, I can't. Well, actually, over here in my apartment in Brooklyn, my dog is in the room with me. This is actually the closest I've ever recorded <laughs> with an animal, with the exception of maybe your cat. But anyway, so hopefully she won't bark during this session here. No, but that gives you an idea, listener, of where we are, quite literally, right now. Although, Tom, I have to say, you were even in some crazier circumstances but a couple days ago. That's true. And as patrons will know who listened to our last takeout episode, after taping our last show two weeks ago on the Shirtwaist Uprising of 1909, my family took off for France for a long-planned vacation, which obviously did not go as anticipated. It was cut very short, things changed very quickly, and we spent several days trying to get home from Paris. But we did succeed, obviously, in snagging an Air France flight home this past Monday. So we are very happy to be home. But while Tom was in France and we were talking as this whole crisis was unfolding very quickly, we decided that we wanted to try something out, something interesting once he returned. We thought that rather than continuing to simply produce one show every two weeks, we might do something a little bit more frequent. That's right. So we're going to test out producing the Bowery Boys a few times a week. We're going to be working out these details over the weekend, but starting next week, we will be in your feed every few days. You know, just checking in, saying hi, and ready to whisk you off to another time in New York City history. Yeah, the shows will be shorter because we will go insane if, we, <laughs> if they were the same length. And they might be a little looser, too. Yeah, I guess we don't really know what they're going to be. No, no. But at least for the next few weeks, we're going to make more of them. And we're going to keep this up at least for several weeks here. We hope to be able to offer through this little experiment a friendly, regular diversion into history. Some of some of the shows will be serious. Some will not mm -hmm. be serious. Yeah, but all of them, in a way, will be a reminder that New York and the world has been through a lot. And we're going to make it through this, too. That's right. And fortunately, there is no shortage of topics for us to cover. Oh. There are things that we have actually wanted to record, you know, shows on for a very long time, Greg. Yeah, these are topics that we kind of deemed too small for a normal episode. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? 
<laughs> Guess what, little episodes? Now is your time. Right. And in fact, listener, if you have a topic that you think would make a great mini episode, drop us a note at tom at boweryboyspodcast.com or greg at boweryboyspodcast.com. Now, this n- limited edition miniseries that we are about to embark on is only possible because of the support of our patrons who support us on patreon.com. So thank you, patrons, for your continued support. Yes, thank you. And now, on with the show. And we will see you again early next week. The Bowery Boys episode 312, Jack the Ripper in New York. A Gilded Age Hysteria. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boweryboys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. Tom is away this week, so today I'm going to veer a bit into the world of of true crime to a case of gruesome murder which occurred on the New York waterfront in the 19th century. Now, the following episode is a bit more graphic than our normal stories, so squeamish listeners, please be advised. The story begins in the year 1891 in a seedy hotel along the East River waterfront at a place called Catherine's Slip. The location of the old East River Hotel, which is our setting for today's show, is in a neighborhood today called Two Bridges, situated between the Brooklyn Bridge and the Manhattan Bridge. But in 1891, there was only the Brooklyn Bridge. It had opened less than eight years before the time of our tale. This was a depressed and squalid place once known as Cherry Hill where the rotting waterfront met dark tenement blocks, overcrowded and infamous for hosting disease. The East River Hotel and its rowdy saloon downstairs were popular with the sex workers of the waterfront and the men who wandered from dive bar to dive bar along the area we call the South Street Seaport today. And the hotel was no stranger to violence or even to unusual bouts of gore. In 1886, during a fight with a barkeeper over the price of a beer, a man was disemboweled with a 19-inch saber. Late on the evening of April 23, 1891, a clerk and bartender by the name of Fitzgerald sat at the bar of the East River Hotel checking in guests for the evening. The hotel managed to be popular with prostitutes who brought their customers here for the evening, despite its paper-thin walls, allowing your neighbors to hear all manner of sound. That night, the bartender saw a familiar face, an older woman who frequented the East River Hotel named Carrie Brown. Possibly, he knew her by her unusual nickname, Shakespeare. With her was a younger gentleman with a pale mustache, a man who gave the name C. Nicklo. Fitzgerald assigned the couple room 31, a corner room on the top floor, handing to the gentleman the room's long metal key. He watched as the housekeeper led the couple up the stairs. That evening was uneventful and strangely quiet, only the sound of creaking boats down at the docks and the rumbling of the elevated train. But by the morning, around 9 a.m., Carrie Brown and her companion had not yet made an appearance. 
So Fitzgerald marched up the five flights to room 31 and knocked at the door. With no response, he broke into the room and beheld a scene of unimaginable savagery. He called for the building's owner, who gasped upon entering the room. There lay the murdered and mutilated body of Carrie Brown. Immediately, the owner ran from the hotel into the street and down to the Fourth Ward police station. This was no ordinary crime, no ordinary murder. In the owner's report to the police, one suggestion ran through his description, one question that soon sat on the lips of every reporter and detective in New York City. Was it true? Had Jack the Ripper come to town? The Daily News, United Kingdom, September the 1st, 1888. A murder of the most brutal kind was committed in the neighborhood of Whitechapel in the early hours of yesterday morning, but by whom and with what motive is at present a complete mystery. At a quarter to four o'clock, a police constable, when in Bucks Row, Whitechapel, came upon the body of a woman lying on a part of the footway, and on stooping to raise her up, in the belief that she was intoxicated, he discovered that her throat was cut almost from ear to ear. The Observer, September the 9th, 1888. Another brutal murder. Yesterday morning at quarter past six, the neighborhood of Whitechapel was horrified to a degree bordering on panic by the discovery of another barbarous murder of a woman. She was known in the neighborhood by women of the unfortunate class as Annie Chapman. The Times, London, October the 1st, 1888. Two more East End murders. It was early yesterday morning that the bodies of two women were discovered at places within a quarter of an hour's walk from one another. The first body was found lying in a yard, that of a woman with a deep gash on the throat running almost from ear to ear. The corpse was still warm and the deed of blood must have been done not many minutes before. The second victim was also a woman, her face so slashed as to render it hard for the remains to be identified. The Morning Post, November the 10th, 1888. Another shocking murder in Whitechapel. This murder differs in a startling manner from all that have gone before it, in that it was committed not in the open air, but in a house into which the murderer had been taken by his victim. The poor woman had several nicknames, including Mary Jane and Fair Emma, but the name by which she was known to the landlord was Mary Jane Kelly. London now in a terrible pandemonium, Scotland Yard on high alert, The streets of Whitechapel are not safe. Where will the Ripper strike next? The murders which took place in 1888 in the Whitechapel district of London, a little over a mile from the Tower of London. These murders generated one of the greatest cultural hysterias of the Victorian era, and not merely because of the gruesome nature of the crimes, that the women central to these crimes were mostly prostitutes and or alcoholics, underscored the cries of reformers who proclaimed that their vice put these poor destitute women in danger. Then there was the sheer mystery of it all, the killer's elusive character, his possible station in life. After all, gruesome crimes such as these seemed informed by the knowledge of a doctor or surgeon. And then what to make of those gruesome letters to the police, such as the one dated September 25th, 1888. Quote, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, 
but they won't fix me just yet. My knife's so nice and sharp. I want to get to work right away if I get the chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Part of the Ripper's terrible mystique was invented by the newspapers, and across the Atlantic Ocean, the New York press was more than happy to play along. From the New York Times, October 3, 1888. Another mysterious murder brought to light a perfect carnival of blood in the world's metropolis. From the evening world on November 10th, the Whitechapel fiend uses his knife once more. In delivering every salacious detail to American readers, at times more so than perhaps any other international story, and there was a lot going on, it was almost as though they were conjuring the killer onto these very shores. That is, if you print the name Jack the Ripper three times, or three thousand times, he appears. And so almost immediately on the streets of New York, Jack the Ripper, or some Ripper of sorts, did in fact make his first appearance. By the 1880s, the great ocean liners of the Cunard and White Star Lines could cross the Atlantic Ocean in a little under a week. Many believe Jack the Ripper might escape to the United States, that in fact, he might even be an American. On November 23, 1888, a man was arrested alighting a steamer who fit the description of a Jack the Ripper suspect. He was promptly thrown into the Ludlow Street Jail on the Lower East Side, the very jail where, just ten years earlier, Boss Tweed, locked away for his crimes of corruption and graft, had died. From the Evening World, quote, the suspect was a steerage passenger registered in the name of James Shaw. There was in his pocket a paper containing an illustrated account of the Whitechapel horror, and a rumor spread that the Whitechapel murderer was a prisoner in New York. But of course, James Shaw had nothing to do with these crimes. Soon the notion of Jack the Ripper spread through the United States, seen in some form in every major city, the idea of a boogeyman with almost supernatural powers. By December of 1888, a, quote, mild edition of Jack the Ripper, unquote, stalked the streets of Bushwick, Brooklyn, according to the Brooklyn Times Union. Not a murderer, but a terrifying harasser of women, quote, he approaches them stealthily, grabs them by the arm, occasionally clutching their skirts, curses vehemently through clenched teeth, then disappears as mysteriously as he came. The theory then advanced that a veritable Jack the Ripper was in our midst. Inspired by the horrible letters in Scotland Yard, New York officials began getting similar threats. New York Mayor Abram Hewitt received the following letter in the mail. Sir, it is a folly for the police and the newspapers to speculate on my being in Montreal or any part of Canada. I am right here, in your midst, and will begin my operations immediately after Christmas. The following month, a Tenderloin police captain received another menacing note. You think that Jack the Ripper is in England? But he is not. I am right here, and I expect to kill somebody by Thursday next. Soon the usual vicious crimes of gang members and roughs on the Bowery were not 
only compared to those of the Ripper, they were often framed as though they were the Ripper himself, an omnipresent specter of evil. The sordid misdeeds of other criminals were elevated by the press in comparison to Jack the Ripper. Take, for example, the case of Jack the Peeper, a brazen home intruder who terrorized women in their homes in Elizabeth, New Jersey during the summer of 1889. Now, while this individual did not kill anybody, his crimes were nonetheless disturbing. From the New York Times, September 10th, 1889. The prowler who broke into a house celebrated his arrival by kissing the sleeping wife of the householder. The latter woke up and was warned by the stranger, quote, to behave himself. The visitor then picked up a bunch of cigars from the mantel and left the house. This was obviously of great alarm to New York law enforcement, fearing such sensationalism would only inspire crime. In particular, this development vexed the chief of the New York Detective Bureau, a man named Thomas F. Burns, perhaps one of the most influential and eventually most notorious detectives to ever work during the Gilded Age. Thomas Burns was born in Dublin, Ireland in 1842, immigrating to the United States with his family when he was 10 years old. He grew up in the neighborhood of Five Points. He was only a teenager when he first joined a volunteer fire company and later fought for the Union Army in an infantry regiment comprised of young men from volunteer fire companies. At age 21, Burns joined the New York Police Department. One of his first jobs was quelling violence during the Civil War draft riots of 1863. Burns was not just a good officer. He also ingratiated himself with the bigwigs of Democratic political machine Tammany Hall. While his political entanglements would complicate his legacy later on, they did not distract from his abilities as a shrewd and brilliant detective. In 1880, Thomas Burns became Inspector Burns, head of the New York Detective Force. He was responsible for innovating many of the modern practices of police detective work, centralizing the force and including for the first time regular plainclothes detectives. If there had been a mental barrier of sorts between law enforcement and those who committed crimes during the 1880s, Burns now required his detectives to think like a criminal, to understand motives in a psychological way. That trope we see today of TV and film detectives getting too close to the mindset of criminals, well, that's what Burns encouraged of his men. In 1884, he wrote, quote, The first thing that a detective officer ought to do is to familiar himself with low criminals, for that knowledge of crime, the way it is committed, is what makes him a power in that business. At the Mulberry Street Police Headquarters, Burns took advantage of the burgeoning medium of photography to create a wall of notorious criminals for witness identification, a rogues gallery. Yet his dehumanizing attitude towards criminals could take a dark side, condoning and encouraging police brutality, even towards the innocent. He was a statistics-driven professional, aimed at making happy city and political leaders alike, 
even if it meant looking the other way at certain corrupt actions. He also cultivated his own image as a master detective. He made alliances with the press and publicly scoffed at phony detectives like Sherlock Holmes. He even worked with Julian Hawthorne, the son of Nathaniel Hawthorne, in creating a successful series of true crime novels from the diary of Inspector Burns. To quote the author Daniel Citrom, quote, By effectively coupling his innovations in detective practice to new opportunities for publicity available in the modern city, and through his innovative collaborations with journalists and novelists, Burns contributed as much as anyone to the tradition of blurring the boundaries between New York history and mythology, and between police work and police fiction. So how do you suppose Thomas Burns reacted to the crimes of Jack the Ripper being reported in his local newspapers? Well, naturally, with a flamboyant boast. During the height of the murder spree in Whitechapel, Burns criticized the work of Scotland Yard. How would he have handled the mystery? He remarked, quote, I should have gone right to work in a common-sense way, and not believed in mere theories. With the great power of the London police, I should have manufactured victims for the murderer. I would have taken fifty women of Whitechapel and covered the ground with them. Even if one fell a victim, I should get the murderer. Men ununiformed should be scattered over the district so nothing could escape them. The crimes are all of the same class— and I would have determined the class to which the murderer belonged. But pff, what's the good of talking? The murderer would have been caught long ago. To many, Burns' controversial statements, these boasts here, seemed almost to serve as a taunt to the murderer. Less than three years later, a gruesome circumstance would arise and Inspector Burns would get a chance to prove himself. By the early 1890s, New York City had no single red-light district. Prostitution was stratified in line with the city's social class structure. In the Tenderloin, that area which is west of Herald Square, then there was Bleecker Street, and through that place we know today as Soho. In darkened Bowery brothels, astride concert saloons, and stale beer dives, wherever there were men, and men who could be separated from their money, you could find a thriving market for sex workers. This was especially true along the East River waterfront. An area named Corlear's Hook was so infamous for the prostitution which occurred there adjacent to the ship foundries that according to urban legend, the working ladies here were referred to as hookers. Also infamous for its sex trade in the mid-19th century was Chatham Square at the southern foot of the Bowery. As colorfully described by diarist George Templeton Strong, a playground for, quote, members of the hierarchy in most slatternly dishabille. The East River Hotel on Water Street, our central location for this story, is situated near both Chatham Square to the north and Corlear's Hook to the east. Prostitution was possibly this area's oldest profession, outlasting even the fortunes of the waterfront, now a run-down slope of sagging tenements and aging piers. Unlike the somewhat, by comparison, refined brothel houses, 
further up in Manhattan, most women here in this area walked the street, congregating near ferry terminals, looking for clients and taking them to local boarding houses and cheap hotels. While some sex workers in other parts of the city could be considered enterprising businesswomen in some respects, not so the women of the waterfront by the 1890s, often destitute, without families, attempting to avoid the fate of the workhouse or the asylum. These women were often homeless and faced great physical abuse, constantly beaten and robbed, and let's just say inconsistently protected by local law enforcement. In many cases, they were taken advantage of by the very men who were sworn to protect New Yorkers. This was the environment where we find a woman named Carrie Brown. Today, we have a single photograph of Carrie Brown, who was born Carolyn Montgomery in the early 1830s, putting her age in the late 50s at the time of our story. Now, in this photograph, she wears the attire of a chambermaid, but she has a distinguished, handsome face. And it's not hard to imagine her standing next to Carolyn Skirmerhorn Astor, the most prominent woman in Gilded Age society from her mansion on Fifth Avenue. The two were of similar age, but their fates would be quite different. Differing accounts have Carrie born either in England or Canada. She married a sea captain named Charles E. Brown and lived in Salem, Massachusetts, where the couple had two children. At some point, as a young woman, she may have even tried her hand as a stage actress. Unfortunately, her husband died at sea, and Carrie Brown became estranged from her children due to a severe drinking problem. She came to New York at some point in the late 1870s and worked off and on as domestic help for families in the city. But her drinking soon prohibited her from keeping a steady job. She frequently found herself in the workhouse out on Blackwell's Island. By the mid-1880s, having no other options for income, she began working in the sex trade along the docks of the East River. A woman in her 50s, without a family, living in a boarding house on Oliver Street off of Chatham Square. Given her desperate situation, some may have found it curious that this woman could also quite flawlessly recite sonnets from Hamlet and Macbeth. And for this, she was given the nickname of Shakespeare, sometimes seen as Old Shakespeare. On the evening of April 23rd, 1891, Carrie Brown could be found in the barroom of the East River Hotel, the body resort introduced at the start of our show here. Brown was here sharing a drink with another woman named Mary Healy, whose drinking problem was perhaps worse than Carrie's. Later in the evening, Healy left Carrie to her drink, and the woman turned to a housekeeper named Mary Miniter, turned to her and engaged in conversation. She told Mary about her tragic life, Carrie Brown then left and returned to the East River Hotel with a gentleman. To quote from the New York Tribune, About 11 o'clock on Thursday night, a couple sought admittance at the side door, and it was opened by Mary Miniter, the assistant housekeeper. She saw a faded woman with gray hair and slender form, slightly bent, dressed in a checkered skirt and blouse, and having a ragged shawl over her shoulders. Behind the old woman was a man about 35 years old, under medium height and slender, who wore a dark brown cutaway coat 
dark trousers and a black derby hat. He had a long, sharp nose, a thin face, and a heavy mustache, which was light brown in color to match his closely cut hair. Later reports, by the way, would describe this man as actually blonde, with a German-type accent. Upon entry, the couple asked for a room from the bartender. Brown brought up to the room a decanter of mixed ale, while the gentleman, who had paid for everything, nodded, carrying a candle and putting the key in his pocket. The couple was taken to the top floor to room 31, and they locked the door behind them. Three hours later, at 2 a.m. in the early morning, at the Glenmore Hotel in Chatham Square, a night clerk by the name of Kelly was approached at the desk by a man in great distress. His face and clothing covered in blood. According to the New York Times, Kelly recounted, quote, Altogether, the fellow looked very bad. I asked him what price room he wanted. He answered nervously that he wanted me to give him a room, as he did not have a cent. I told him that I could not give him a room, as the house was full. He turned to go away, but instead of going down the stairs, he started for the washroom. I told him we only allowed the guests of the hotel to use that room. He turned then without a word and went down into the street. As he did so, I turned to our night watchman and said, That man looks as though he's murdered somebody. And so we returned to that moment at 9 in the morning on April 24th to the discovery made by the clerk Fitzgerald and his manager. The discovery in room 31. Carrie Brown had been murdered, strangled, and her body mutilated in a pattern in keeping with the Whitechapel murder. A gory knife had been thrown to the floor. It had been the instrument used to carve a cross into her back. Blood and viscera coated the floorboards under the bed. Yet given the viciousness of this crime, no other guests reported any unusual sounds, as though this carnage had occurred with pre-planning and skill. From the New York Evening World, no crime which has been committed in this city for years has stirred the police department to such tremendous activity as the horrible butchery of Carrie Brown, alias Old Shakespeare, by Jack the Ripper or his double at the East River Hotel. Now there's one additional detail from this article that I wanted to add. Quote, a strange thing about the case is that no marks of blood appear either upon the furniture of the room or on the doorknob or woodwork. How a man could accomplish such a fearful butchery without having the marks of it upon him is a mystery which is not yet explained. How the killer disappeared from the scene of the crime was later revealed when bloodstains were found on the roof of the hotel. He'd escaped through a window and scurried across the rooftop to an adjoining building. The reason that so many members of the press could give such clear descriptions of the murder scene is that they, along with a number of detectives, were allowed into the scene of the crime. One of the reporters that day, investigating the grim site in room 31, was a man already known in New York, the social reformer Jacob Rees, who at the time worked for the New York Sun. When Inspector Burns arrived onto the scene, his renown was such that the other officers actually cheered. 
Believe it or not, even with officers and detectives swarming the building, guests were still allowed to book rooms here at the East River Hotel. Burns immediately sought the assistance of law enforcement in that major city across the water, Brooklyn. After all, escaping by ferry or other vessel would have been very simple from this spot. Meanwhile, Burns' men scoured the Manhattan waterfront, arresting dozens of people. Interestingly, as was the custom of the day, unfortunately, key witnesses to the crime, including the aforementioned Mary Healy and the housekeeper, Mary Miniter, well, they were all thrown into a holding cell and kept for several days. The brutal nature of the crime had all the hallmarks of a Jack the Ripper slaying, which is why the press was so uniquely fascinated. By the time that Carrie Brown's body was finally at the city morgue, rumors circulated throughout the city that the killer was on the move. Women were cautioned from wandering too far from home. Burns was under a unique pressure to find the killer, and to find him quickly. From the New York Times the day after the murder, quote, Inspector Burns apparently feels that the murderer must be arrested soon, for Inspector Burns has said that it would be impossible for crimes such as Jack the Ripper committed in London to occur in New York and the murderer not found. He has not forgotten his own words on this subject. And so in his desperate haste to find the real killer, he looked instead for the simplest suspect to blame. Now, according to reports... Burns' detectives recalled finding a trail of blood which led from room 31 to room 33 on the same floor. It was then discovered that a man named Amir Bin Ali had occupied room 33 on the night of Carrie Brown's murder. Amir Bin Ali was a sailor from French-occupied Algeria in northern Africa. Coincidentally, in Brooklyn, one of the men caught in a wide net of arrests associated with the crime was, in fact, Amir Bin Ali. Was it just a coincidence that Bin Ali, who was already arrested in this dragnet, had been at the hotel that night? He also spoke with broken English like the killer. And it was also later revealed that he knew Carrie Brown. Like the victim, Amir Bin Ali was also known by a nickname, Frenchie. Less than a week after the murder, Frenchie became the prime suspect in the crime, with newspaper rumors of various kinds, even that Frenchie had been Carrie Brown's lover. The Evening World ran a list of incriminating facts. Quote, there were bloodstains in room 33 on the wall, on a chair, on a floor, and on the bedclothes. Bloodstains were on his shirt when he was arrested. Analysis has shown that these stains are from human blood. And so Frenchie, Amir Ben Ali, was accused of the murder of Carrie Brown. Despite the fact that, as many openly observed back then, there were missing links. Ben Ali did not match the description of the mysterious gentleman with Brown on that evening, what about that mysterious testimony from the Glenmore Hotel, the man with the bloody face? And that trail of blood between room 31 and room 33, did it even exist? But the question which weighed most heavily on the minds of New Yorkers and their newspapers and their law enforcement on that particular day, was the sailor Amir Ben Ali really Jack the Ripper? 
On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Today's show is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp makes connecting with a professional counselor convenient, and you can get help on a schedule and a pace that works for you. And it all happens in a safe and private online environment. Secure phone and video sessions, and you can chat and text with your therapist. BetterHelp has 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states, professional counselors who are specialized in all aspects in all kinds of fields, including depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, family conflicts, LGBT matters, 
grief, and more. And it's available worldwide. Bowery Boys listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code BOWERY. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com Bowery. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com Bowery. Amir bin Ali was born into the Beni Aisha tribe in Amekta in the region of El Milia along the northern coast of French-occupied Algeria. Now, we're uncertain of his age, but we do know that he was of military fighting age by the year 1870, where he fought in the Franco-Prussian War under French command in a regiment comprised primarily of Algerian Muslims from the region. After Ben Ali was discharged due to an injury, he began working as a sailor on fruit boats which operated along the northern coast of Africa. In 1888, he immigrated to Brazil looking for similar work in the trade. But Ben Ali, who spoke only Arabic and just a little bit of French, was at a disadvantage in this Portuguese-speaking country. So soon after, he boarded a vessel shipping fruit to the United States and eventually made his way to New York. Unfortunately, he fell upon hard times in the city, working for meager pay on the docks and soon gravitating to the same area of the East River waterfront that had drawn the destitute Carrie Brown. Ben Alley got into several scrapes with the law, locked up on several occasions, although the nature of his crimes were unclear, Amir later confessed, even to himself. What certainly played a role in his misfortune in a largely white, Christian, English-speaking town was the fact that he was a dark-skinned Algerian Arab who spoke thickly accented English. He was also Muslim in a city of the 1880s with so few. In 1893, the first mosque would be built in New York by a convert to the faith named Muhammad Alexander Russell Webb. But by 1893, Amir Ben Ali would no longer be in the city of New York. Despite later testimony from him to the contrary, Ben Ali was familiar with Carrie Brown and with many women who worked the streets of the waterfront. On the evening of April 23, 1891, he later testified that he had been strolling in the park by Castle Garden, that's today's Battery Park, He eventually wandered up the waterfront to the East River Hotel, where he booked a room at 11 p.m., slightly before or after the arrival of Carrie Brown and her mysterious male friend. He, too, was in the company of a woman, a prostitute named Marianne Lopez. By his testimony, he claimed that he awoke early at 5 a.m. and went back along the waterfront looking for work. When Ben Ali was arrested in Brooklyn as a possible witness, he was found wearing clothing dotted with traces of blood, and dark clotted blood was found underneath his fingernails. It was upon the weak strength of these details that Inspector Burns was able to charge Ben Ali with the murder of Carrie Brown. From Burns' perspective, the universe had provided an easy suspect to convict, and one with ample circumstantial evidence attached to him. But today, of course, we can look back at this testimony at his inquest, and later at the trial, as sheer character assassination concealing a very obvious lack of evidence. 
Waterfront prostitutes, boarding house employees, and petty criminals all came forward to testify against his character as somebody of dark and violent impulses. However, testimony from women like Marianne Lopez, who did not share that view, that testimony was either diminished or ignored. As for physical evidence, Inspector Burns based much of his case on the blood found in Room 33, the blood trail between Rooms 31 and 33, and the blood found between Ben Ali's fingernails. Several witnesses reported viewing firsthand the blood trail on the floor and the splatter all about Room 33. Yet only few seemed to notice something odd about these testimonies, Only detectives and officers of the New York Police Department claimed to have seen the blood with their own eyes. The final strike against Bin Ali was his own incomprehensible testimony. Out of nervousness and coercion, the story of his whereabouts kept changing, and even the nature of his relationship with Carrie Brown, who he did appear to know, was extremely unclear. He had the disadvantage of speaking through an interpreter, and having no money could not afford an investigator of his own to look into the myriad more obvious clues that the inspector was advantageously ignoring. To quote the author Wolf Vanderleiden, quote, The ADA's relentless questioning finally caused Ben Ali to once more jump to his feet and exclaim in frustration, If they want to kill me, they can. Amir Ben Ali was found guilty by the inquest jury, then went to a murder trial almost immediately. He was held throughout the entire process in the Tombs prison in the neighborhood of Five Points, just a short distance from the doorstep of the East River Hotel. On July 3, 1891, ten weeks after the murder of Carrie Brown, the jury returned with a conviction of second-degree murder. Of the 12 jurors at his trial, 11 voted for first degree and for the death penalty, while a single juror held out for a lighter sentence. The calendar saved him. Fearing further debate carrying over into the July the 4th Independence Day holiday, the jurors relented. And so second degree it was. Amir bin Ali was sent up the river, the Hudson River, to Sing Sing Prison to serve out a life sentence. He had narrowly missed an appointment with another arrival to Sing Sing that week. On July 7th, 1891, just four days after the verdict, Sing Sing's brand new electric chair, macabre nicknamed Old Sparky, was used for the very first time. But for the stubbornness of a single juror, Amir Ben Ali, too, would have had a date with Old Sparky. Almost immediately, questions of his supposed guilt circulated in the newspapers. After all, journalists like Jacob Rees had been at the murder site, had taken notes as closely as any of the detectives. Not one of them recalled seeing a trail of blood between the two rooms. Not one of them remembered seeing blood in room 33. And what about the blood on the rooftop of the East River Hotel? That they did see. And how did it get there? And questions remained, of course, about Inspector Burns' handling of descriptions of the murderer, descriptions that looked nothing 
like Ben Ali, recall that description involved a man with a blonde mustache. And then some evidence came forward that would definitely prove Burns' case to be an utter fraud. In 1901, a businessman named George Damon came forward, very belatedly, with a discovery which had been made in his home in Cranford, New Jersey. Ten years earlier, in the spring of 1891, Damon had hired a Danish laborer to do work on his home. Within a few nights after the murder of Carrie Brown, the man had disappeared. But in a drawer, Mr. Damon came along two items which the Danish man had left behind. A blood-stained white shirt and a long metal key. The key to room 31 of the East River Hotel. Armed with this new information and affidavits from reporters on the scene the night of the murder, declaring their belief that the convicted man was innocent, Benelli's lawyer petitioned the governor of New York, Benjamin Odell. And so, in April of 1902, 11 years after the murder of Carrie Brown, Amir Bin Ali became a free man. He immediately headed back to the city of New York, boarded a ship back to Algeria, and never looked back. As for Inspector Thomas Burns, in 1892, the year following the death of Carrie Brown, he was made New York Police Superintendent, situating him within the very heart of police corruption right at the very moment that reformers were taking charge of city government. One of those reformers was the new president of the police commission, a man named Theodore Roosevelt, who helped to show Burns the door in 1895. Burns did eventually open his own detective agency in New York to middling results. He died at his home on the Upper West Side on May 7th, 1910. He was, as his obituary proclaimed, quote, the best known and most picturesque figure of the New York Police Department. But with clarity on Ben Ali's innocence comes the realization that the murderer of Carrie Brown was never found. No trace of the Danish laborer employed in New Jersey by the businessman George Damon, no trace of him was ever found. Her murder, to this day, remains unsolved. And so you have to ask, did the murderer strike again elsewhere? This crime was just one of many that ushered in a new era of grim violence in America, sensationalized by the yellow journalism of the day, ramping up each escalating instance of horror, and looking for an American devil of their own, to the delight of enwrapped readers. On May 1st, 1893, two years and a week after the murder, both horror and wonder would meet in the headlines of newspapers in Chicago as the glorious World's Columbian Exposition, the World's Fair of 1893, would finally open its gates. And just a couple miles west of the fair's Midway Plaisance, a new hotel would open, operated by a man named H.H. H. Holmes, and a destination that the press would later call the Murder Castle. And the press 
would soon find their American devil, a new devil, in the White City. For more information on this story, please check out our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, for more images and newspaper clippings related to this week's show. Of course, as always, you can follow us on Twitter at BoweryBoys, on Facebook, and on Instagram at BoweryBoysNYC. And a special thanks to actor Peter Simon Hilton for providing the voice of the London newspapers. By the way, I shouldn't just leave that there. If you you don't know who H.H. Holmes is... Well, that's all I'm going to say about this story. Go read the Eric Larson book, The Devil in the White City, for more information. We are in an unprecedented moment in our history right now. We are all isolated from each other. Many of you are away from your jobs. It's quite an uncertain time. And I hope that our new frequency, which we mentioned at the beginning of the show, rewind to the beginning if you forgot what we're going to be doing uh, for the next few weeks here, our brand new schedule, we hope that that will bring a little bit of extra new routine into your life. I really want to give a big thanks to those who support us on Patreon.com. Your support is greatly appreciated in times like this. Those who support us on Patreon will receive our bonus episode called The Takeout, which is the after-show conversation about the show that we just recorded. But since I just recorded it by myself, it'll be a conversation with myself. What this actually will be is a couple extra stories that fell the first draft of the story. Uh, Some weird things that happened in New York. Of course, patrons also received the Bowery Boys Movie Club, a Tom and I celebration of New York City at the movies. I'm going to give a very special thank you very kindly to patrons Robin N. and Barrett J. from Manhattan, Marie C. from Queens, Michelle from New Jersey, Brian D. from Massachusetts, Jennifer M. and Angela E. from California, and Breezy P. from Missouri. We couldn't do this without you, and especially now. So thank you very much. We hope that by increasing the frequency of our shows, we can help in a little way in our isolation from each other during this period and just make it all just a little bit more bearable. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.